Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time. It is the end of the week, and it is time to talk about science and skepticism. So as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Evidence-Based Facebook page. Um, I, for instance, posted a link uh, the other day to a really neat DIY moon phase calendar uh, for the upcoming year, and that's from NASA JPL. And so uh, if you want to go to the uh, Facebook page, you'll be able to get that link. And especially if you have uh, children, it's a fun way to do a little bit of science together. Uh, you can also listen to this uh, episode later on and previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, uh, as well as at evidencebasedradio.com. Now, I hope you're having a safe and cozy evening as the snow falls outside. Uh, it looks like we are lucky and we did not get as much as we might have done, so that's very exciting. Um, do you remember that... Uh, as you think about that, weather is extremely hard to um, predict. Uh, it, there are so many factors. And I know that people get very frustrated that weathermen can't really tell them exactly what's going to happen. But unfortunately, that is really a product of the fact that weather is an extremely complex uh, system and that ridiculously small changes can have large effects. Um, and so it's just hard. But luckily, this time it worked out in our favor because we're getting a little less snow than we thought we might. So this is very exciting. Okay, so we all know the world is kind of falling apart around us. Um, there's not all that much to be thankful on the national front this holiday season, um, but I really hope that uh, 2018 will bring renewed hope and better tidings. Um, so I hope that you will all have a great holiday with friends and family um, if you celebrate that or just have a nice uh, day off uh, on Monday the way that I will. And so, yeah. Now, Again, as I like to do on this show, I'm not going to dwell on the bad. I want to dive into some science uh, that will let us escape the worries of daily life, at least for a little bit. So let us start tonight with a favorite topic of mine, which is, of course, smarty pants crows. <laughs> so a study earlier this month looked at what may be the smartest species, uh, which is New Caledonian crows. They're kind of the uh, OG smart crows that people have studied for um, many, many years. So these crows have been observed for some time using a variety of tools, including hooked sticks, which they use to extract insects from trees. Um, and I think you can actually see them doing this in the famous and wonderful, and I always recommend uh, David Attenborough's Life of Birds. If you haven't seen it, you should. It is amazing. And I just, I cannot recommend it enough. And so they've been known to do this for many years. But they hadn't really, no one had actually really, really studied it. So a team of biologists at the University of St. Andrews have discovered just how it is that the crows make their remarkable hooked tools. Uh, 
Now, this is important research, uh, not only because the crows are the only animals besides, or that because uh, the crows are the only animals besides humans that actually employ hooked tools. So other animals um, that they have created themselves, other animals use sort of uh, naturally occurring hooked tools, but no other animal besides these crows and human beings actually create hooked tools. So it's really interesting to watch uh, how they do it and to observe them and to figure out what's going on. So while observing crows in the wild, the team led by Professor Professor Christian Roots noted that the hooked tools vary considerably in size and shape. Some were barely bent crooks, while others were quite beautifully crafted with deep hooks. Professor Roots explains, We suspected that tools with pronounced hooks are more efficient, and were able to confirm this in controlled experiments with wild-caught crows. The deeper the hook, the faster birds winkled bait from holes in wooden logs. Now, this led the researchers to observe how the crows are able to fashion such tools from the raw materials around them. The team suspected that, much like human tools, creation of a crow's hook would involve two main components, good raw materials and skill. And, of course, what they found, uh, well, not of course, but what they found confirmed these results. And so the hook shape was influenced by the plant material and the technique employed by the crow to extract extract the material from the branch. Crows were capable of making controlled cuts with their sharp bills, but also sometimes simply pulled a piece of material off of a branch, uh, which resulted in a less efficient but still usable hook. And this is where it got interesting. It turns out that older crows, who presumably would have better skills at making hooks, were actually more likely to use the sort of lazier, uh, just rip it off method than juveniles. It probably takes more time and effort to make such hooks, and experienced birds may try to avoid these costs. It is also possible that deep hooks break more easily when inserted into narrow holes and crevices, he noted. Now, not only is this interesting for animal behavior research, but it can actually also help anthropologists develop theories of how humans developed the ability to create such advanced tools. So humans began crafting stone tools over three million years ago. However, the oldest known fish hooks so far discovered are a mere 23,000 years old. So this is the first study of its kind to examine what factors determine the shape of crafted tools and how that affects their foraging efficiency in a non-human animal. Now, again, we must note that there might have been earlier hooks, but the first hooks that we've found are 23,000 years old. So, um, for instance, chimpanzee expert, excuse me, Professor Christopher Bosch, um, director of the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Anthropology, notes that we have recently discovered that chimpanzees routinely use naturally hooked stems to fish for algae, but they don't actively craft these hooks. The crows can reshape plant material with their pointed bills, which act like precision pliers, but this would be very difficult for chimpanzees with their large fingers. And so it continues to be an open question as to how humans developed the ability to craft such complex tools. Okay, 
So let us move on now. We're going to talk about several stories tonight that are sort of making the rounds on Facebook and places like that. Uh, So first, we're going to stick with the animal kingdom. And we are going to talk about the story that I'm almost certain that you have heard of, because it's one of those stories that people just are very uh, much want to share because it's so odd. And this is, of course, the fact that uh, female monkeys have been seen to be mounting deer for sexual pleasure. Now, animals, much like humans, don't only engage in sexual activities in order to procreate. Many species engage in a range of non-procreative sexual activities, including homosexuality, sex as a form of exchange or a bonding tool, and uh, we've even learned that sometimes, for instance, brown bears enjoy oral sex. (laughs) Um, And so interspecies relationships are also not without precedent. So let's talk about this particular instance from a study published in the Journal Archives of Sexual Behavior. Now, the activity seems to be local to the female Japanese macaques of central Japan. We first witnessed this behavior in 2014, and the locals who interact with this population on a daily basis had never noticed it before then. So we were quite lucky, because I think we witnessed the start of it. Study author Noelle Gunstlecka of the University of Lethbridge told Popular Science. The researchers also note that this isn't a totally one-way interaction. Not surprisingly, the authors write in the study, adolescent female macaques spend the vast majority of their courtship time in contact with the deer's body parts, offering the most stable contact zone. So for instance, the back and rump, and to a lesser extent, the shoulder, uh, neck, and head. And so while on the back of the deer, the macaques engage in the normal courting ritual of grooming the deer, uh, removing ticks and other pests that they can't really get in, get to. They groom areas not easily accessed by deer, said Gunstlecka. And so um, researchers observed 13 successful courtships, all but one of which involved an adult male deer. The 13th involved an immature male. Now, eight failed attempts involved five that had uh, females or immature male deers that did not uh, come to fruition, one that involved an adult male deer, and two where it turned out that another macaque uh, interrupted in order to try and woo the deer themselves uh, or simply to prevent the other from doing it, Uh, not It depends on, you know, it's hard to ascribe motive (laughs) to uh, these animals. Um, But this is what happened. And so one of the things that they suggest uh, why it's so much more um, prevalent in with males is that they observed that in general, the male Sika deer just tend to be less... uh, Uh, they tend to be more calm, even when humans are around. So the females and the younger animals tend to be much more skittish, and the males tend to be kind of like, whatever. (laughs) Um, There's actually a video, and I'll I'll post it um, from on the Facebook page if you haven't seen it and it really is you see these, uh, you know, the macaques mounting the deer and the deer just kind of standing there like, Okay, whatever. 
So clearly it's not uh, something that they are having a huge issue with. Um, and so there are a variety of reasons for why such interactions can take place. Um, and so, yeah. Now, there are other examples of interspecies romance that we've known about in the past. Uh, and so some of which I will uh, spare you the details of because they're actually kind of horrible. Um, but there are some that are not so horrible. Uh, and so the researchers suspect, however, that this is the first observance of a non-human primate having intercourse uh, or a non-human primate having intercourse with a non-primate in the wild. Um, and it's important to clarify non-primate, non-human primate, uh, because as we know, humans are very adventuresome, <laughs> just to put it mildly. Okay, uh, so for instance, in some cases, predatory behavior is redirected into sexual arousal, Gunstleka says, but this behavior can also serve as practice for copulation with their own species. And in most cases, it's simply because there's a lack of mating outlets for males. Now, in this case, it's actually, of course, the females, and the macaques have already developed relationships between each other. Our research on the sexual development of this species showed that these adolescent females are not the preferred partners of adult males, uh, she notes. And so previous to having developed their relationship with the Sika deer, females would actually copulate with each other, and they still do that, in fact. Um, and so uh, Gutlaka notes that they're not entirely homosexual, but they're certainly bisexual. And so uh, the macaques and these Sika deer actually already had a fairly close relationship. Uh, the deer benefit from food dropped by the foraging macaques in the trees above them. And observations of macaques riding on and otherwise playing with the deer prior to the development of this more sexually charged behavior have definitely been observed. Um, and so the researchers point out that the deer are much more passive partners in this activity um, compare, compared to how the females might be treated by older, more aggressive male macaques. During this social play, some young females must have experienced a kind of genital uh, stimulation. It's what we'd call a developmental byproduct of non-sexual activity. If this spreads, it could be the start of a culturally maintained phenomenon, she said, but only if it's transmitted socially. So future observations could tell us if this group-specific spe group oddity is just a short-lived fad, which can happen, or the beginning of something else. <laughs> so while it may seem bizarre, nature is actually a lot more weird and complicated than we often realize. Okay. And speaking of animal sex, <laughs> we are swiftly approaching the mating season of the Gulf Corvina, a type of croaker fish that spawn in Mexico's Colorado River Delta between February and June. Now, this might not sound like a particularly interesting story, but it turns out that a few days before the noon or full moons, the male fish begin to sort of quote-unquote sing. Now, the sound is not like a whale song or bird call or anything, more of a rapid burr, 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 like a muted version of a machine gun. 
Now, I'm going to play a clip. Uh, it's a little, just a little short clip. Um, and it's mostly going to probably sound like static, to be honest. Uh, that's what it does to me. But uh, I wanted to definitely play the audio clip. So hang on for a second and we will listen to the sound of these fish. Okay, so like I said, mostly just kind of a staticky sound, but you could hear some of the distinctive kind of boop, boop, booping um, at parts where it's actually a little bit louder. And uh, so it turns out that it may be that these are actually the loudest fish ever documented, or at least they are the loudest fish ever documented. It's the jury's still out on if they're the loudest fish actually out in the ocean. And so this is according to Timothy J. Rowell at the Scripps Ocean Institution of Oceanography uh, in California. And so Rowell, along with his colleague Brad E. Erisman, a University of Texas at Austin fisheries scientist, uh, spent four days in 2014 observing the fish using sonar and recording them with underwater microphones. And so this is in the Colorado Delta region of Mexico. Um, and the area was once fairly lush. Um, but of course, much of the Colorado is now diverted way before it reaches the Delta. Um, and so it's kind of desolate there, uh, but certainly not quiet. <laughs> when you arrive at the channels of the Delta, you can hear it in the air even while the engine is running on the boat, Raul noted. Now, the fish are as loud as a lawnmower. Uh, he, is, they, he compared them to uh, a lawnmower. And so the full chorus can reach 202 decibels, with individuals being able to call as loud as 177 decibels. Uh, and this is according to the paper published in the journal Biology Letters. Now, the only marine animals that we know of at the moment that can reach louder volumes are whales. Um, whales, of course, are known for their song. Um, and in fact, it's so loud that it has the potential to damage the hearing of sea lions and dolphins who prey on the corvina. Uh, and so basically the way that they uh, protect themselves is that they seem to stick to the edges of the spawning groups in order to avoid getting the sort of full brunt of the chorus. So in order to produce the sound, the fish have swim bladders, uh, air-filled sacs within their bellies, and so what Raoul refers to as sonic muscles encircle the swim bladders. And so when the fish contract their abdomen, the muscles impact the swim bladder like drumsticks on a snare drum. The chorus reaches its peak during high tide when the fish are believed to be spawning. Um, and they can't really observe it because it's dark and also the water there is very murky. Um, but the researchers actually collected eggs during that time in order to uh, determine that the fish were spawning. And so the researchers believe that the loudness of the chorus is due to individuals trying to outdo each other in order to woo females. And so it turns out that actually a lot of fish have uh, mating vocalizations both for when they are courting and actually when they are spawning. 
And so it's not just the Corvina who are loud. Uh, According to the New York Times in a uh, 2008 story, a seaside community in Florida almost wasted thousands of dollars to try to dampen what they thought was the noise from municipal utilities. That is until a marine science grad student (laughs) told the city council that the sound was not utilities, but canal fish calling to their mates. (laughs) Um, And so you can't really do much about that. Now, unfortunately for the Corvina, while their calls may bring in mates, they also bring in fishermen who can easily follow the sound to the huge shoals of Corvina. So the fish is actually now listed as vulnerable by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Um, And fish sizes have also shrunk over the last five to ten years. Now, this may be due to poachers who have an unfortunately uh, rather uh, large presence in this region of uh, Mexico. Um, But one of the really excellent things about studying fish calls... Uh, is that it actually may in future be a tool for estimating fish populations that doesn't involve any kind of invasive techniques. So right now they either have to sort of catch fish and dissect them to see to look at their gonads, or they have to uh, collect fish larvae, which then don't uh, develop in the ocean. Um, but it won't be necessarily easy. What we need are the smart computer people to help us come up with computer algorithms to identify the sounds automatically, Lobel said. It's a complicated acoustic problem. Despite this, in July, Raoul, Erisman, and their colleagues estimated that the spawning corvina may represent as many as 1.55 million fish. Uh, So that's a pretty big amount. And so they are definitely using this to try and estimate um, the size of the population. And so hopefully this can uh, be tested in some way. And then uh, this would be a great way in order to uh, look at populations of fish, especially populations of fish that are, for instance, uh, endangered. You would not have to actually cull any fish in order to do this you could just use this sonic measurement so hopefully that is going to work out okay let us switch gears now to the world of archaeology one of the enduring mysteries of the inca civilization is how they used kipu now kipu are intricately knotted collections of strings that have baffled researchers for years We know that they were used as a form of record-keeping, but until recently, no one was able to truly decode any of them. Manny Medrano spent his first year at Harvard University working on the problem of decoding kipus, and has actually made a major breakthrough. So Professor Gary Erton, a scholar of pre-Columbian studies, worked with Medrano on a set of six kipus, which they were able to match to a Spanish census document. Because they were able to make these connections, this combination may, we hope, uh, lead to a sort of Rosetta Stone situation, which will enable other kipus to be interpreted and decoded. This would be a huge breakthrough for giving voice to the Inca, who did not leave written accounts of their histories. The only sources we have at present are chronicles of the Inca that were written by the Spaniards, Erton notes, 
We know in a lot of cases, those histories were skewed by Spanish beliefs and Spanish motivations. And so we don't really have any indigenous Inca history. Erton began the Kipu database project at Harvard in 2002. Um, and so as part of this project, he traveled the world in order to examine quipus in collections, both private and public, and to record the numbers of knots, lengths of cord, color of fibers, and other details of more than 900 Inca quipu. Now, while it's been known for some time that the quipu were a form of record keeping for census data, for instance, uh, they were also used potentially for keeping track of goods and even as calendar systems. Other than that, little was known of how to precisely interpret them. The breakthrough came when Erton began to, exam to examine a set of six quipus from the 17th century Santa River Valley region of northwest Peru. He was lucky enough to come across a book which contained Spanish census data for the same region and time period. A lot of the numbers that were recorded in that census record matched those six quipus exactly, Erton says. And so in the spring of 2016, he mentioned it to his undergraduate students at the end of a lecture. This was the spark that led Medrano to begin work. I walked up to him and said, hey, spring break is coming up. If you need someone to put a few hours into this, I'd be happy to take a look, he recalled. Medrano, now a junior, is actually an economics major, um, but he has always found archaeology interesting and was also always interested in puzzles. I wasn't thinking he'd ever do much with it because I'd had one or two other people look at it before and nobody could ever come up with anything, Erton says. However, Medrano had the advantage of being not only from a Mexican-American family, so he already spoke Spanish uh, and could easily work on the documents, but he also had an economics background, which helped him to better digest the data. He found that the way each cord was tied onto the quipu was correspondent to the social status of the 132 people listed in the census. The color of the strings appeared to correspond to the first name of each individual. Their work will be published in January in the journal Ethnohistory. Medrano will be the first author, quite the accomplishment for any undergraduate, least of all someone who started the research as a first-year student. The two hope that their research will help other scholars decipher quipus in other contexts. And for Medrano and Erton, what this represents, again, is an opportunity for the Inca to tell their own tale. As Medrano puts it, history has been written from the perspective of the conquerors, and to reverse that hierarchy is what I see this project as doing. So that is very cool. Um, I love Mesoamerican archaeology and anything that shows us better how those people were living and their history is extremely exciting. All right, we are going to take a break now for some PSAs. And when we come back, we will switch over to a couple of stories about geology. So hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. 
I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerating. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Okay, we are back. 
And uh, I just want to note, while I was uh, getting ready this evening before the show, I was actually listening to Japanese metal music, and it was pretty cool. Um, So definitely give um, DJ Sakura a listen. Okay, so we are, again, going to switch to geology. So you may have heard, or you may soon hear, uh, that scientists have discovered a mass of hot rock welling up beneath the northeast. So the first thing to know is that this poses absolutely no danger to you or anyone living today. (laughs) So absolutely do not worry about it. Uh, Nothing is going to happen. It's completely fine. So the researchers actually used a network of thousands of seismic measuring devices, which represent the largest geological study of the kind to detect the blob of magma upwelling under Vermont, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. So it's sort of in the middle of Vermont and in uh, western New Hampshire and western Mass. (laughs) But again, nothing to be worried about. The upwelling we detected is like a hot air balloon, and we infer that something is rising up through the deep part of our planet under New England, says geophysicist Vadim Levin from Rutgers University, New Brunswick. The researchers assume that the upwelling is new in geological terms due to the fact that New England is not particularly known for volcanic activity. Now, of course, in geologic terms, means that it could have been developing for tens of millions of years. Now, um, if it continues to upwell, it will eventually erupt. Uh, But that's not guaranteed. There's no guarantee that it will continue to upwell. But even if it did, again, nothing to fear. It will likely take millions of years for the upwelling to get where it's going, Levin explains. The next step is to try to understand how exactly it's happening. And so the researchers used a tool called EarthScope, a multi-institutional network of instruments which monitors seismic movements that ripple through the North American continent. Pouring through the data, the researchers took special note of New England, where previously a thermal anomaly some hundreds of degrees Celsius hotter than the surrounding upper mantle, um, at about 200 kilometers or 124 miles below the surface. And it measures around 400 kilometers or 248 and a half miles in diameter. It is a very large and relatively stable region, says Levin, but we found an irregular pattern with rather abrupt changes in it. Now, though this region is large, it's certainly not the largest under the continent. For instance, it's small in comparison to the magma chamber contained under Yellowstone, which again is not any worry, (laughs) Um, at least at the moment. Definitely not anything to worry about and probably not in anyone's lifetime that we know. Um, And what's interesting is, of course, that this finding was unexpected. The region was considered geologically inactive prior to the discovery. We did not expect to find abrupt changes in physical properties beneath this region, said Levin. And the likely explanation points to a much more dynamic region underneath this old geologically quiet area. And so, yeah, that's really interesting. And so... um, we have another story from geologists. Uh, They are reporting that they may have discovered a potential reason for earthquakes that happen in zones that are far from the edges of tectonic plates. 
And so geologists refer to these types of earthquakes as intraplate earthquakes. We present a new hypothesis that major seismic zones are restricted to places where the large-scale basement structures have been damaged by concentrated crustal deformations, Professor Emeritus William A. Thomas from the University of Kentucky and Christine A. Powell from the Center for Earthquake Research and Information at the University of Memphis write in the new study. These concentrated crustal deformations, or CCD, can include any activity that at some point has weakened the layers of the area at the deepest levels of the continental crust. It seems that many of these areas actually have scars left from hundreds of millions of years ago when ancient plates reorganized. Those scars reactivate over time and create seismic zones. And so the researchers looked at three examples in particular. The Chauvois seismic zone along the St. Lawrence River in southeastern Quebec, uh, which is located not only on a deep basement vault, but also is the site of a significant meteor impact from some 360 million years ago. Now, researchers don't think that either element on its own would have caused the earthquakes, but combined, it seems that the deformation caused by the impact played a key role in activating the seismic activity within the area. Um, And this area has actually experienced five earthquakes greater than magnitude six since 1663. The second zone is the New Madrid seismic zone in Missouri. And it turns out that this one has a deformation, uh, has deformations that were produced by perturbations to the crust following the breakup of the supercontinent Rodinia over half a billion years ago. And finally, for the eastern portion of Tennessee, tension builds around an abrupt kink within one of the deformations, which creates what geologists refer to as a releasing bend, uh, which, you know, if you think about how earthquakes work, uh, generally anything that includes the word releasing is bad because you end up with uh, energy being released and that's what leads to an earthquake. Although the mechanisms producing the CD the CCD vary, the regionally restricted CCD serves to focus seismicity in these three zones, the researchers write. Now they note, however, that there are more likely other factors involved beyond, beyond these crustal deformations in creating these seismic areas. And so, as with everything, more research will be needed. But any research that helps us discover what is going on with earthquakes is really important because we want to be able to figure out how to deal with predicting them. We would really like to be able to predict them. And so hopefully anything, especially, you know, in this kind of place, It's really hard to determine because, you know, they're not on a fault. So you can't just on a, at least a traditional fault. I have a bad feeling about this. Um, And so you have to be, sorry about that. Um, Not sure what happened there. Uh, But anyways, so it's really important for being able to predict these sorts of things. Okay. (sighs) 
let's finish up tonight um, our stories with a couple of debunkings. (laughs) So uh, first off, it has been widely reported that a former government official has suggested that the government has been in contact with aliens. (sighs) Sigh. (laughs) Uh, So obviously... Most of this story is a rehash of things we've heard over and over throughout the years. Uh, So they say that, you know, most of the government believes that we have been contacted by um, members of, or aliens, uh, members of other worlds. And uh, they also bring up the idea that, you know, fighter pilots and other uh, military personnel have seen uh, planes that do all sorts of things that nobody can explain. Um, but of course, we know from many, many, many other examples that almost always there is a perfectly reasonable explanation for what is happening. Um, it's very, very rarely that something cannot be explained. Um, And when things cannot be explained, they are almost certainly still a natural phenomenon that we just not that we just haven't figured out yet, or that we just didn't realize was happening. Um, Even these fighter pilots who see things, most of them, it turns out to have been some sort of uh, astronomical issue that they just were unaware of. And I want to be really clear here that, you know, this is not a um, judgment call on these people. Uh, Many, many, many people uh, believe in UFOs, believe they've seen weird things. And this is a uh, sort of psychological issue in the sense that it's your brain tricking you. It's not that you're crazy. It's not that there's anything wrong with you when you see something that you might consider a UFO. It is simply that your brain is tricking you. Um, It is filling in information. And uh, especially if you're not familiar, for instance, with astronomical uh, things that are happening, you can very easily see something that is not uh, what you think it is. Um, So I want to be really clear about that, that I'm not saying that people who believe in aliens are necessarily crazy. Um, You know, obviously, there are some people who have taken it a little bit too far. Uh, There are definitely a lot of people out there with conspiracy theories and who are still obsessed with alien autopsies and, uh, you know, Groom Lake or uh, Area 51 and things like that. Obviously, there are people who have taken it too far, but a lot of just regular people believe that they have seen things. Um, So for instance, the Phoenix Lights uh, is a huge example of something where tons and tons of people thought they saw something. But if you actually sort of look back at the explanation that was given and people's uh, testimonies, even though they swear they saw something unique and interesting, um, it's almost certainly that it was military flares uh, that these people saw. Um, It ends up working out very, very, um, the, the explanation works very well for it having been military flares and people just having not realized that that's what it was. And so, you know, but those are just normal everyday people. They're not crazy. They just thought they saw something. And especially when someone tells you, oh, I saw this thing and it was weird. 
even if you didn't necessarily think it was weird before that, you will most likely start to think that, oh yeah, maybe it was weird. Um, And so that's how these sorts of things happen. Okay, so the one thing here that was sort of different um, in this story, which was broken in the New York Times, uh, it suggested that there is a building in Las Vegas where the government had stocked piles of alloys and other materials associated with UFOs and that uh, this was sort of one of those sort of expose things. And um, afterwards, in an interview, one of the uh, authors actually uh, suggested that some of these alloys are unidentified and unidentifiable. So um, that is the Times reporter Ralph Blumenthal. And so he was on MSNBC and talking about this article. And he said about the alloys... They have, as we reported in the paper, some material from these objects that is being studied so that scientists can find what accounts for their amazing properties, this technology of these objects, whatever they are. And so when asked what the materials were, Blumenthal responded, they don't know. They're studying it, but it's some kind of compound that they don't recognize. And the reason I want to be clear about the fact that this was an interview is that um, in the original article, it doesn't go into that kind of detail. Um, They only state that the company um, involved in the DOD research modified buildings in Las Vegas for the storage of metal alloys and other materials that program contractors said had been recovered from unidentified aerial phenomena. So they don't actually go into that um, during the actual article, but he did sort of extemporaneously give this information in this interview. And so, you know, people were watching this and for instance, uh, editors at the website Live Science, (laughs) they were sort of watching this and thought, "Mm, we're dubious. (laughs) So what they decided to do was some good uh, journalism. They actually went out and asked a bunch of chemists and metallurgists how likely it is that there are actually unknown alloys that the government can't identify. And it turns out that the answer is not terribly likely. I don't think it's plausible that there that there's any alloys that can't be identified. Richard Shal- Sa- Sashleben a retired chemist and member of the American Chemical Society's panel of experts, told Live Science, my opinion, that's quite impossible. And it turns out that even if an alloy fell to Earth from space, it's unlikely that it would be from an alien craft. Sashleben notes that alloys strike the planet planet regularly, for instance, in fairly common nickel-iron meteorites. He went on to note that uh, there's not as many mysteries in science as people like to think. It's not like we know everything. We don't know everything. But most things we know enough about to know what we don't know. Um, And so they also noted that if you have an alloy that you don't know what it is, uh, there are many tests. Um, You do x-ray crystallography um, on it, for instance, and... um, Uh, You can use inferometers and you can just you can find out what is in alloys. There is no um, you know, they've never encountered any alloy that they couldn't 
examine and find out what its components were. Um, So again, it's still highly unlikely that we have been visited by aliens and especially that the government is hiding it from us. Um, Again, I always would say that this is more likely that it's foreign countries that have done things that we have uh, recovered and are hiding the fact that we know that they did these things. It's always much more uh, that that sort of Occam's razor explanation has always been more compelling to me than the idea that there are actual aliens out there trying to do anything. Okay. And so finally tonight, I want to talk about another story that's been making the rounds on Facebook. Um, And in fact, I think even uh, much to my chagrin, George Takai shared it. Um, And it's so it is the it features the picture of a preserved creature, uh, which was found in India, that some are saying looks awfully like a dinosaur. Um, and so it's it's a small animal. It's only about a foot long. And um, yeah, it's it's not a dinosaur. <laughs> I hate to burst people's bubble, uh, but this is definitely not a dinosaur. Um, and this is actually something that happens fairly, fairly frequently. Again, it's not that people are, um, you know, dumb or anything like that. When animals uh, have been stripped of their fur and uh, especially when they're desiccated the way that this animal is, animals that would normally look completely easy to identify can often look very strange. Um, So for instance, there is the famous case of the Matok monster, uh, which was this bloated carcass that uh, sort of washed up onto the beach in uh, Matok, New Jersey. And people were like, what is it? And I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was like um, a raccoon or something where all of the fur had been uh, removed and the animal had bloated because it was dead. And so it just looked so weird. But it was really just, you know, a small mammal that had been decomposing. Um, And so not a monster at all. And so again, in this case, it is almost certainly not some sort of monster. Um, Assistant professor of zoology at Ramnagar Government PG College, Buana Pant, uh, examined the carcass, included that it belongs to the mammalian family and that the skeleton's lower jaw has sharp and cutting edges. Canines are well-developed and pelvic girdle and humerus shape also resemble that of a mammal, like a mongoose. And in addition, Professor Badaher Katalia of the Department of Geology at Kamuan University in Nanatal uh, was contacted by the Forest Department, and in his report, he notes that it is likely that the carcass belongs to the cat family, perhaps that of a young mammal. It has a deformed head and unworn teeth, meaning that the animal had not begun chewing food. And so um, it might have been a small uh, serval cat or something like that. Uh, and so, again, this is the sort of thing where somebody looks at this and sees dinosaur, but really it's probably just a really unfortunate animal um, that got caught. Uh, for instance, he suspects that the animal uh, got caught in this area and uh, its head was caught and then it couldn't move and it eventually died and was sort of semi-mummified. Um, and in fact, uh I'll share a story that um, 
my mom will probably not appreciate, but my dad actually found a mummified cat once. Um, and it was pretty, it was pretty impressive. Um, he actually saved it so I could see it. <laughs> um, for science, people, for science. Um, and so it was really interesting. And um, in this case, it was curled up. So it looked, it looked more cat-like. But I can see that if it was extended, it might look weird. Um, and you can see in this pic, in the picture, um, which obviously I'll post on the Facebook, that um, you know some of the limbs are actually snapped. Uh, so you don't know how they were originally um, positioned. And so, yeah. Definitely, I think that beyond the superficial superficial visual resemblance to a dinosaur, um, this is not a thing. But I think that interest in the creature was actually compounded by the fact that the electric substation at Jasper um, had not been opened for 35 years. So, of course, you know, it adds this premature of uh, mystery to, oh, you know, no one's been in there in 35 years. And here's this uh, carcass under a bunch of junk. And has somebody been, you know, hiding something that's important here? Almost certainly not. <laughs> um, and so further tests will be done um, once. And so once and for all, we will be able to figure out what the creature was. Um, but it's almost entirely, I there is zero possibility that it is a dinosaur. Uh, dinosaurs do not exist anymore, would not have existed in order for a carcass of this um, preservation to be uh, available to us. It just is not possible. All right. So we actually have a couple minutes left. So I'm actually going to play a couple more uh, musical tracks or a couple of musical tracks I suppose the the fish sound really isn't musical <laughs> uh even though it's supposed to be you know a mating song and so uh we're gonna end tonight with two clips from Alan Turing's uh original computer of uh Christmas carols and so these have been recreated from the original notes and um, it's really fascinating. Um, not necessarily the most tuneful uh, of tunes, but I think it's interesting to listen to them. So uh, the first one is Jingle Bells. So let's listen to that. Okay, um, if you want to listen to the second one, it is Good King Wenceslas. Um, and again, I will post a link to the Facebook because it turns out we're actually out of time for tonight. Um, so I will be back next week, hopefully, uh, weather permitting. And uh, until then, do stay tuned for Civil Politics and have a great holiday break. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.